If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. The scripture lesson comes from Mark's gospel. Mark wastes no time, gets right down to us, to it, tells us how it was or how he thinks it is. From the first chapter, the first eight verses. In the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending you my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here ends this reading inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I don't know where we went wrong. I don't know where we went wrong. That's, that's what I hear when I read these introductory lines about John the Baptist. I don't know where we went wrong. We don't know much about John the Baptist, and we sure don't know what got him to the point of wearing camel hair and eating honey-covered bugs. Really, what happened here? The Gospel of Luke tells us about his parents, Elizabeth and Zachariah, a homemaker and a pastor, seem like really nice people, salt of the earth. How could John have ended up on the outskirts of town, dressed like that, yelling in the wind. I mean, I wonder if that's what they said about their son. But at least they could say that he wasn't just another millennial living in his baby boomer parents' basement. I mean, that's the alternative, right? Let the kids stay or see him in the median of Northwest Expressway and I-44 yelling at passersby. I mean, that could actually be ex the ex explanation of what's wrong with America. These days, baby boomer parents let Junior live in the basement because 
they're afraid he'll end up wearing camel hair and eating insects, just like John the Baptist. Millennials are the worst. I mean, we are ruining everything, so I've been told. Of course, millennials are not the ones who have held a majority of House seats since 1994, or made up 86% of governors, three quarters of the cabinet, and much of the judiciary and bureaucracy. Uh, how to confuse a millennial. Tell us we need a master's degree for a job you got with a high school diploma. Crash the housing market, replace grad jobs with unpaid internships, then tell us to buy a house. I'm not kidding. But it's fine. We're starting to run for office. But we need your basement to run the campaign, so don't kick us out yet. <laughs> Back to John the Baptist who we don't know much about. But given what we do know, it is clear that John has done some rethinking of how things should be. You may be wondering where the fire and brimstone went, the part about the brood of vipers and an unquenchable fire. That's the John the Baptist of Matthew's gospel. We talked a few weeks ago about how obsessed Matthew is with hellfire, hell this, hell that, eternal judgment, and so on. But this is not the John the Baptist we meet in Mark's gospel. This John the Baptist is the prophet foretold, the one who prepares the way for Jesus. Or so Mark says, the very first words of the gospel of Mark announce the fulfillment of prophecy, something like the good news of Jesus the Christ begins with something Isaiah the prophet wrote. Quite frankly, this is annoying for preachers. Just use your own words, Mark. It's easier for everyone. Now we have to do exegesis on Isaiah. Which Isaiah wrote this? There's more than one, you know. When was it written? To whom was it written? Is the writing done at the time of the events or long after? It turns out that Mark doesn't quote Isaiah verbatim. He sort of adapts it. Here's Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But in Mark, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The difference is tricky because it's hard to hear when someone moves quotation marks. It's easier to see if you actually look it up in your Bible. So I'm going to ask you to take your pew Bible, which is in front of you next to the hymnal, and open to both Isaiah 40 and Mark chapter 1. If you are having trouble finding these texts, there are at least three recovering Baptists within arm's reach, and they will be happy to help. Isaiah 40 and Mark 1. So Isaiah, and you can see how Mark moves the quotations. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, a voice cries out 
And now the quote starts, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But then switch over to Mark and you can see how he moved the quotes. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He's moved the quotes and changed some things. Jesus seminar scholar Robert Miller explains that Mark 1 verse 3 quotes Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, but changes its meaning in two ways. First, Mark exploits a syntactical ambiguity in the Greek version of Isaiah 40, which could allow the phrase in the wilderness to modify either voice or prepare. So how do we know what was intended? It's that exegesis piece. The context in Isaiah clarifies that the prophet speaks about a road across the desert on which the glory of God will travel with the people as they return to Israel from exile in Babylon. That's why he's writing. But Mark relays the prophecy to John the Baptist, who preached in the wilderness, in the desert. So Mark's context, it must be the voice, not the way that it is in the desert, even though Isaiah was talking about the way in the desert, not the voice. Mark affects a second change in the meaning of Isaiah's prophecy by retrofitting its last line. Isaiah speaks of a way for God, whereas Mark makes this into a way for Jesus. He accomplishes this shift by changing Isaiah's the paths for our God to his paths, which allows the term Lord to refer to Jesus instead of God. This is not the only time Mark operates as editor-in-chief to make selective quotes coherent with Mark's theology. He sprinkles Hebrew Bible prophecy in his short gospel four times, although compared to the other gospel writers, Mark is rather conservative in his use of borrowing prophecy. Matthew and John are most interested in the strategy of persuasion. What makes Mark different is that he backs up the process one step. Not only does Jesus fulfill prophecy, the one who comes before him fills, fulfills prophecy. It's almost like double insurance. It is possible that the gospel writers learned this strategy from the apostle Paul. Paul, whose letters are the earliest available writings about Jesus, wrote that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Robert Miller goes on to explain that the belief that Jesus fulfilled scripture was crucial to the earliest groups of Jesus followers because it was a way to assure themselves of religious legitimacy. Making that connection was essential in a time of, and culture that regarded old sacred writings with reverence and anything new in religion with suspicion. Helping Jesus fulfill prophecy was a way to justify their belief in Jesus by the strongest means available at the time and to convince themselves that Jews who did not embrace belief in Jesus were wrong not to do so, since their own scriptures predicted him. 
Out of this grew an anti-Jewish polemic that has been incredibly harmful to our Jewish neighbors. And since I brought it up, our anti-Jewish history continues to play out today. Rabbi Sharon Brous provides a good summary. Last week's unilateral decision to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, reversing decades of bipartisan foreign policy that unofficially understood Jerusalem to be Israel's capital, but deferred embassy relocation until the conclusion of peace negotiations, that reversal was reckless, heedless, and counterproductive, done by a president who campaigned on radicalized bigotry, who promoted hate mongers to unprecedented positions of authority in the Oval Office, who issued a Muslim ban one week into his presidency, and who just last week retweeted widely discredited anti-Muslim hate propaganda in order to placate the hardliners here and there and distract Americans from the chaos reigning at home, particularly the federal investigation for obstruction of justice and the Alabama Senate race, in which the president has now given a full-throated endorsement to a child sexual predator. Perhaps moving the embassy to Jerusalem doesn't seem to be anti-Jewish on its face, but evangelical conservative Christians have been advocating this move since the beginning because it will fulfill biblical prophecy specifically from the book of Revelation. This theology, called dispensationalism premillennialism, might be familiar because of the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye. It holds that when the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, God chose the church to accomplish God's mission. But God still loves the Jews and wants to redeem them. At some point, the Jews will experience a great religious rebirth and rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. This will spark a series of cataclysmic events that will culminate in the Battle of Armageddon, the last war of humanity, but it will also cause the Jews to finally accept Jesus as their savior. After all this has occurred, Jesus will return in glory and God's kingdom, will reign for a thousand years of peace, all beginning in Jerusalem. I do not believe for a minute that the current president knows the term dispensational premillennialism. <laughs> but as Diana Butler Bass noted, his evangelical supporters know it. Trump might not really care how they interpret the Bible, but he cares that white evangelicals continue to stand with him. Moving the embassy to Jerusalem is one way to affirm his commitment to these evangelicals, reminding them that he, Donald J. Trump, is pressing biblical history forward to its conclusion, and that he is God's man in the unfolding of these last days. This is why we should take care when reading our sacred texts. We must take the Bible seriously enough to study it in its context, to flip back and forth, and to note when prophecies have been reworked to fit particular agendas. But what we should not do is abandon it, especially not to theologies of death. The Bible has too many powerful stories for us to just give it away. After all, 
where else are we going to find a story about a nonviolent revolutionary who hung around with lepers, hookers, and crooks, wasn't American and never spoke English, was an anti-war socialist and a community organizing, anti-slut-shaming, brown-skinned, Middle Eastern Jew who gave away free health care. <laughs> Jesus, a 30-year-old son of a carpenter, feeling disenfranchised and disengaged, wandered down to the River Jordan to hear a voice crying out, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Jesus, along with the people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem, were going out to him and were baptized by him, confessing their sins. Jesus, too, confessed his sins and was baptized. And he took John's message so seriously that he became a teacher. John the Baptist, without all of this prophecy fulfillment business, becomes an even more important voice crying out for us. Now we've got regular old John the Baptist, who at some point did some serious soul searching and schooled himself in divestment, ridding himself of anything that might obstruct the path of justice, mercy, and walking humbly with God. This John, not fire and brimstone, nor prophet foretold John, is the most inspiring of all. This is the guy who helped Jesus find clarity. When the prophecies fall away, we are actually left with something doable. No prophecy necessary, no divinity required. We are left, just as John was, to prepare the way, as Isaiah said it, the first time. In the desert of death, in the wilderness of war, prepare the way of the Lord. Remove the roadblocks to peace. Clear the path of discrimination. Sweep away the despair in your hearts. Prepare the way for life and love. And since this John isn't a magic man, this is our task too. Prepare the way, church people. Prepare the way that God might recognize home, a place where the hungry are fed and the lowly are lifted up. So you there, you there, get the news writers ready Rearrange their headlines with words of hope and expectation. No fake news, no sir. The statistics are too sobering to play games. Replace the ink and toner. Refill the paper trays. It's time to spread the word. There is another way. All we have to do is turn everything upside down. Get the economists excited. Give them news of upturns and renewal in people's value rather than market value. Divest. Divest from means of war, ways of war, a life of war. Let's pull our money out of a fossil fuel-based economy and put it into clean energy. No more fighting over the black gold that's staining our hands and our hearts. Peace is on its way, one reinvestment at a time. Get the politicians lobbied, inform them that this is the time to measure our gross national happiness. 
Tell them no more boilerplate legislation from the extremists. We're paying attention now, and things are going to change. Get justice underway. Fight for equality. Bake the wedding cake. <laughs> Prepare the way for those struggling with addiction and mental health that they might find respite and help instead of a prison cell. Get busy crushing the darkness and countering the now exposed half-truths of those in power. Get the church house ready. Open wide the doors and invite them all in, the undocumented and the unsure, the lost and the found, the seekers, the doubters, the believers. We do not do quotas in the beloved community. Prepare the way. And you, you there, get your heart out of hiding and dust off your hope. Look at our children and tell me they are not worth fighting for. Look at yourself and tell me you are not worth fighting for. Do one more thing that matters in the world, then do three more things. Prepare the way. Get the bread of life baked. Pour the wine of truth. Use the scraps from the wall we don't need and build a longer table. Prepare the way of the Lord. You there and you there and you and you. Prepare the way. Look alive. We're not waiting on a prophecy. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Waukee, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.